Chapter 15 of Romans and verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and are able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable or may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Verse 20, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it was written, they who had no news of him shall see and they who have not heard shall understand. And for this reason I have been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain for I hope to see you in the passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister them to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. As this year comes to a close, we find that the Apostle Paul is also closing his awesome doctrinal treatise to the church at Rome. And that's what it is, isn't it? It has been. It's a, it's a treatise of, of doctrine, a body of doctrine that he has presented. And he comes to these closing words, and closing words in a letter, might I say, uh, tend to switch us off somewhat. Mainly because they are so often mundane and just mere protocol that we sort of expect at the end of many letters. But this is not so with Apostle Paul's closure of his letter. What he does here in these closing words is he powerfully encourages the Roman believers. As a matter of fact, he powerfully encourages all believers of all time, including us here this morning at New Community Church. And his closing remarks, I believe, are especially fitting 
for our counsel and encouragement as we face the closure of another year and look with anticipation at 2014. And the reason I say this is that 2014 for NCC, New Community Church, will demand that we be ambitious. And don't get too carried away with that word. That we be ambitious for Christ. His purposes, His mission, to His glory. And perhaps like we've never been before. That's going to be the call of us. You see, the Lord has provided and He's blessed us over this last year, like some of us have been reflecting on this morning, and many of us and all our church has been reflecting on since we've been here in this last couple of months, He's provided us with opportunities, He's provided us with these new premises, He's provided us with new people, new goals, new challenges, and because of that, because of that, we will be tested. We will be tested. You see, the Lord has answered, and you'll all agree here for those who are locals, the Lord has answered prayer in so many personal and collective ways. And now our stewardship, our stewardship to what the Lord has entrusted to us will be put to the test. Personally and collectively. In other words, the question we can ask ourselves and as a church here this morning and for the visitors here, they can take this on board as well, how are we going to respond? How do we need to respond in this coming year, perhaps like we've never responded to God's grace and goodness and kindness and mercy like never before? After all, remember the principle that Jesus mentions in Luke chapter chapter 12? He who has been given much much will be required of him. So how ambitious are we going to be in pursuing God's purposes as we serve him in the life of this church or the church where you normally come from? What is your ambition? What do you hope to achieve for the Lord in this next year that we're about to move into and beyond? Peter was talking about question marks before. Now there's a question. You see, in our culture, it is so easy to be consumed with all sorts of stuff, right? We can be consumed with work and careers and family and money and leisure. And it's so often and it's so easy to be consumed with with temporary things at the expense of eternal things that matter most to God. My dear people, how we need to take stock and pursue with ambitious passion God's purposes, God's mission, God's holiness for the health and function of this church and for the church for where you come from. We need to pursue those things. So how do we do that? What might be a plan, you can ask? What might be a plan? Well, in this closing section that Paul gives here, I believe he gives us a great plan to shoot for. Some of the things might seem way beyond us and and nigh impossible, but there's an underlying implication in all this section is that with God all things are possible. John, this morning, just mentioned this time last year when we were meeting in the high school, to be where we are and have new folks come amongst us like they have the last couple of weeks would never have believed it. But with God, all things are possible. 
That is, that is. If you humble yourself, if I humble myself, and that we depend upon Him to live God's life, His supernatural life, in and through us, that's absolutely vital that we're dependent upon Him. So this morning what I want to do is to, to have a broad snapshot of our section in chapter 15 this morning and as we look at this I believe we will get a, a good overview of what we need to shoot for and pursue with a holy ambition for God's glory. And so our first holy ambition for a more healthy church is that we pursue spiritual maturity. We see this in verse 14. And this is what it says. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now what Paul is saying is here, he's coming in encouraging. He spoke some deep truths to these believers in Rome. And from chapter 12 onwards, it's very practical and he's exhorted them and admonished them how that they're to treat one another and to love one another and not to prefer others above others, etc., etc. And he now comes and encourages them with these words. And he is convinced, even though he had never met these folks and even though he had never been to this church, he is convinced that this was, verse 14, was their spiritual measure. In other words, this is an appraisal of what they were spiritually as a church. He encourages them with this description of their spiritual maturity. First of all, he points out that you're full of goodness. And it's not as if he's just shooting at the sky or anything. He obviously had had reports back and so forth and he had, knew, no, he had known some of the believers that were there, one or two of the believers that were there. And he points out that they were full of goodness. That is, that their lives were characterized with such goodness and virtue that they were above reproach in every area of morality. That's what that means, full of goodness. No, they weren't perfect, just like us. They weren't perfect, but neither were they spiritually deficient in this area of morality, in this area of goodness. You see, as they submitted themselves to God's will and His power, these believers, you know what they did? They bore the fruit of the Spirit. They were full of goodness. Another word for that is virtue, and that's what we have in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where it describes the fruit of the Spirit. But we also see something else. They weren't only full of goodness. We see that these believers were filled with all knowledge. So what does this mean? What this means is that these believers generally across the church, they, had a, they had, a, had a solid grip on the deep truths of the gospel of God. It mentions the gospel of God here. The opening verse, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul was an apostle who was sent to preach the gospel of God. And so here we were, here we are. Paul sums up what this church is about and they certainly would have had all the info that they needed in this treatise of Romans so far, that they were, they were filled with all knowledge. They had a deep grip on the deep truths of the gospel. They were sound in doctrine and also in the practice of that doctrine. They were sound in it. And this is how goodness and knowledge go hand in hand, folks. It needs to. They knew God. They knew His truth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were committed to holy living and to live their lives in line with the truth that they knew. Their fullness of knowledge was evidenced. It was out there. It was evidenced in their everyday holy living, in their homes, in their workplaces, wherever, before both God and man. 
And finally, not only were they filled with goodness and filled with all knowledge, but finally we see in this descriptive trilogy, I call it a trilogy of spiritual maturity, we see that they were well able to admonish one another. That is, they were able to counsel one another. That's what the word means. They never had the mindset that when trauma hit or someone got into a lot of difficulties, okay, off you go to a secular psychologist or even second best, a Christian counsellor. No, no, no. Within the local church at Rome, these believers had the spiritual wherewithal to admonish, nutheo, which means to counsel one another. The word admonish carries with it the idea of coming alongside another believer in the church to encourage, advise and to warn and to give spiritual counsel in times of need. This is what this word means. So here is a model, can we say, of a spiritual mature church that we can set our sights on for 2014, right? They're full of goodness. They were mature, they were sound, they were filled in their knowledge of the truth. And because of all these things, they were able to counsel each other. Or you could put other words on that, disciple each other. How cool is that? Bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? That's what church is for. Build one another up so we can counsel one another. To be filled with goodness and the knowledge of the truth so we can be witnesses. So where do we fit in here, folks? Where do we fit in? Where do you fit in? What is our spiritual measure? when lined up with the church, church at Rome. Allow me the liberty to help us in our spiritual assessment this morning. You see, folks, Christians, generally speaking, fall into a number of tribes, that's what I call them, or categories. You know? They had tribes in Apostle Paul's day, much to his concern, he was talking about, I have Apollos and I have some Peter and I have Cephas and so forth. Well, today there's, generally speaking, four tribes, four categories of Christians. And generally speaking, we fall into one of these. There may be some overlap. The first one is, we have those who lean heavily on being self-reliant. And during all this, look within yourself and be humble before the Lord and and do some spiritual assessment as I have needed to do and still need to do and continue to do myself. Now some of these self-reliant folks may be genuine Christians or they may be not. You want to keep that in mind as well. These folks are generally good people, often good people. They work hard at being honest, at kind and, and even they love going to church because it, because it helps them be what they want to be and to feel in this world. It helps them with that. The problem is many of this tribe of Christianity, they do not personally know or have not appropriated for themselves Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. You see, the foundation of their faith is not in Jesus Christ and Him alone, but in what they can achieve through their own religious goodness. That's the sad part. They do not understand the absolute truth of Scripture that demands repentance of sin and faith in God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They don't understand that. 
They have this underpinning foundation that tells them, I need to earn this blessing from God. These folks, this tribe, this category of Christianity, are prone often to wearing themselves out, burning themselves out, as they try, try, try and try again. And you may know, they will often end up abandoning Christian truth and walking away from the things of God because all their efforts fail at some point or other. And they say, it's too hard. And they walk away. They lack the joy of salvation. That's another characteristic of these people, this tribe. They lack the joy of salvation because they are consumed with depressing guilt. Move on to the second tribe. This is the scholarly Christian. Okay? This is the scholarly Christian. There are heaps of these folks around, by the way. They're the clever ones. They're the smart ones. They're well-read. They're great debaters. And they may even study at a seminary or a Bible college. But it can be that these Christians are all theory and no practice. Or as I say, all show and no dough. All talk and little action. These folks are often excel at, at pointing out the problems of a church and with other Christians. But more often, they are majorly deficient themselves at putting their own theology into practice. That's what you'll find. They have a knowledge of God, yes, but they often deny His power in their own lives to trust Him, to love Him and love others, to obey Him and to encourage others and to serve in the church and to persevere under trial. They often lack that practical need. Third group is what I call a spectator Christian. Okay? Spectator Christian. So we've had the self-reliant, we've had the scholarly and now we have the spectator. You know, I'm a spectator sportsman, by the way. I used to be out on the field doing it tough, but those days are gone now. And um, the mind is willing, but the body is weak. I see Pete smiling away back there. And uh, it's in the armchair, or can you say on the sideline, on odd occasions, where my place is now, a spectator. But the passion has not gone, folks. Believe me, the passion has not gone. You ask my wife how passionate I get in my critical interaction when I'm watching a game, usually rugby or league or... Mind you, I've been taken up with the cricket in the last couple of days and maybe even a little bit this afternoon. That's if it's not all over. But when the game is over that I'm watching, when the game is over... You won't see or hear me until the next game. I'm a spectator who thinks and interacts and even coaches only when it's game on. Now, folks, being a spectator of a sporting event is one thing, right? But sad to say, sad to say, listen to this, sad to say there are too many believers who uh, merely watch and interact with their Christian faith from the sideline, just like that. 
They are what I call part-time believers who often tell others what they should be doing, which is often spiked, by the way, with critical comments about people. Like me, when a poor shot or a wrong move or whatever. They're part-time believers who, who, who often do that. And they're also good at making demands, but in them of themselves they are very slow at serving others sacrificially in the assembly of God's people, very slow. They usually are the ones who have all the excuses for not coming to Bible studies and have little interest in growing in the knowledge and understanding of God. After all, they know it all, right, these folks? These sideline Christians? These folks are usually the ones who frequent church when it suits them. I'm really being cynical here and I hope you can get to the point. And they leave their Christian profession behind just like I do when I get up the games over off my armchair. These folks leave their Christian profession behind when they leave the church premises. You get the picture? They're spectators. Okay, let's move on. There's another tribe. This, is, this, this last tribe is the, is, is the description that Paul gives the believers at Rome. These were the scriptural Christians. And, and I believe this is where we want to be, right? This is where we want to put our feet and our heart down on. This is where our goals and our holy ambitions should be set for. You see, these folks were the true blue, the real McCoy, we might say, of what genuine faith produces in the life of a believer. This church was characterised by goodness, that is godly living, as I've said before, in their homes, in their workplaces, in, in, their, in their leisure hours. And they were not like this by simply sucking it in and trying harder. No. They were like this because their lives and their very beings and their essence of who they were was firmly anchored to the truth of Scripture. They were filled with all knowledge. They loved this truth so much and it meant so much to them, they followed it and they lived it out, period. They understood, folks, that a true believer is, is not just full of all knowledge and that's it, for knowledge by itself does what? It puffs up, right? Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 8.1. It puffs up, it gives us a fat head so we can't fit a hat on. They understood the need to know the truth to study God's word. Why? As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, to show themselves approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That's why. Why do they do that for? So that they might apply this truth to their lives in moral goodness, which involves a whole lots of things and serving others, and loving others, and persevering when the going gets tough, and then being qualified to counsel others. That's why. These believers in the church at Rome, they were scriptural Christians. How's the spiritual assessment going, folks? Have we noted any holes in our lives? I noted a whole lot of mine. I have repented. And by God's grace, I'll have a greater passion for His holiness and for His glory. 
Are we filled with goodness? That's the question. Are we filled with goodness, all knowledge, and are we equipped to disciple, to counsel others? That's a wholly ambitious goal to shoot for in 2014 and beyond. Second point is we need to pursue an evangelistic emphasis. Okay, we need to pursue an evangelistic emphasis. The first one is, was that pursue spiritual maturity and now we need to pursue an evangelistic emphasis. And in this section, Paul talks about his plans for going cross-cultural mission or his ongoing cross-cultural mission to the Gentiles. Because he was the apostle who was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And what he does here in this section, he gives us details of his own calling of God to preach the gospel to those who had never heard it before. Which is why a trip to the church at Rome was not a priority at the moment. We have that in verse 20 and 22. And so as he travelled widely for the sole purpose of preaching the gospel and that by God's grace, new believers might be added to newly established churches. You see, Paul was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was a church planter par excellence. He pursued God's calling with a passionate surrender of all he was enabled by God to do. He pursued it. Now, this begs the question of us all, are we all called like the apostle? No. God does not ask us all to be missionaries or church planters. However, he does ask us all to be faithful witnesses. Being faithful in our evangelistic witness means what? It means total dependence on the Lord, just like Paul practiced. You see, folks, what happens is that we are so prone to depending or blaming our strengths and our abilities, our methods and style for evangelism, success or failure. We so often look within our church, we look within ourselves as individuals, we look at the resources that we have and have got and we blame that. But look at what Paul says his evangelism involved. You see, Paul knew his place. He knew his servanthood status or his slavehood status to Christ. He knew his purpose of what he was about and what he was called to do. And he also knew his limits. What he say, say in verse 18, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. In other words, his human abilities, that is, his strengths and his weaknesses in and of himself were always kept in subjection to the greater power of Christ who enabled him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They were in subjection. I love that because people, how, how we need to pursue an evangelistic emphasis that will bury so many of our prideful attitudes and prideful excuses because we have them. Believe me, I have them. And I'm an ordinary bloke and you're ordinary people. And some of those ex- prideful excuses that need to be buried may be like this, I don't know what to say uh, or what I need to say. I- I'm not a good, clear communicator. I don't want to say anything wrong or, or, or what might come across as being stupid sounding. 
Or I just get so tied up with this, with this knot of fear. These are just some examples of the excuses that we cough up so willingly and readily when it comes to being a faithful witness. You know what the one common denominator in all those excuses are? Is the word I. Remember Moses? We've been going through the book of Genesis and into Exodus lately in our home groups. Moses had excuse, I. I cannot speak. I am not eloquent. It's the same thing here. You see, we admit these, this mistaken notion that all the excuses that we cough up, we admit that we believe that the success or failure depends on us and it's we who change another's life. But folks, that's not right. Paul understood it is God who changes people, not him. We are just vessels. Vessels that God uses to pour out His grace into people's lives. He is the one who overrides our fumbling, our mistakes, our inabilities, our fears. He overrides them. Our job is simply this, to be faithful to share what we can, whenever we can, with whoever we can. That's it. Our job is to plant seeds. Whether you think it is well put seed or a poorly put seed or what, our job is to sow the good seed and trust God to bring the growth. You see the dependence? My dear people, how great it would be if we pursued an evangelistic emphasis with ambitious passion in 2014 like we have never done before as a church. Remember again the principle we have been given much, much will be required of us. We also see in this section that Paul went out looking for people who had never heard the true gospel. He was not content to, it says there, to build on another man's work. Though I might point out there's nothing wrong with building on it or adding on another ministry. Paul even commented on this when he wrote to the Corinthians and, um, and he says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the interest. Apollos was a great man. He, was, he, he built on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul planted and the Apollos came along and he watered. So there's nothing wrong with building on another man's ministry. But that was not Paul's call. In regard to this, I really believe that the Lord has begun a good work with us here at this church, at New Community Church, in this new premises, in this new locality. The Lord has introduced us to new people. We even have some here today. New contacts for his sake. The Lord, folks, has seen fit to use us for his glory. Don't treat that lightly. What a privilege it is. New people have already heard the gospel. Unsaved people have heard the gospel. Your goodness, your goodness has clearly been evident. Truth from God has been upheld in many ways, I have observed. And I have noted and commend you for the love that you have shown for one another and for the folks who come through that door. My heart is lifted and I give thanks to God for that. I've seen your hospitality, your kindness, your love for them for the gospel's sake. And again I say I commend you, but praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do not praise our methods, our initiative, our planning, our building or whatever else. See what I mean? Or blame when it seems to us that failure has hit us. Or blame 
on our inability, we must depend on God and what we do. Remember, God wants your availability, not your ability. It is what Christ accomplishes through us in the gospel. That's what we shoot for, and that's what we must shoot for in 2014. May we continue and never give up in our homes, through our families, in our workplaces, through our, our church, to pursue with a holy ambition the gospel, a gospel emphasis for God's glory. The third and final one is that we must pursue flexibility when plans are changed. <laughs> we certainly had to be flexible earlier on when our plans for this data projector, brand spanking new cables and everything, blinked out on us. And um, thank you for being flexible in that and not walking out as the, um, when uh, things went wrong. But um, what we see in this last section is that Paul has a heart of love for the ministry of God that God has called him to do. But we also see his love for the saints. We see in verse 23 that he, he says, I am longing to come to you. So he not only had a love for the, God, for the Lord's people, but we also see he had a heart of mercy. So he had a heart of love and a heart of mercy and that he was attending, he was involved in the needy saints back in Jerusalem and taking the collection of money back to them to help them in their need. And all this involved a delayed visit to which he also wanted to visit Spain. There, were, there was lots of comings and going here. There was, there was a, and all this missionary strategy, this proposed coming and going, what we see is Paul makes plans, right? He makes plans. He has a mission strategy, if we want to put a modern spin to it. And underpinning all this activity, this planning of one day going to Rome and then on to Spain, Paul was assured that his visit would be, as we have in verses 23... Um, 32, the fullness of blessings of Christ in verse 29 and that he would finally get to Rome by the will of God. That underpinned all the Apostle Paul's planning and strategy. You see, folks, Paul had a holy ambition. He did. He had a holy ambition to preach the gospel of God to the Gentiles, but he was fully flexible. He was fully flexible when his plans were changed. Yes, he did finally get to Rome, by the way but not by the way he expected. He had an all-expenses-paid trip by the government of Rome where he was shipped to Rome as a prisoner for the gospel's sake. The voyage included a shipwreck which nearly killed him and the whole, lot, whole, whole crowd, but they all were saved. And then finally being placed under house arrest for two years. And after some time, he appeared before the high court at Rome and more than likely was executed in that city and we're not even sure whether he made it to Spain or not. Like he planned. You're going to read all that. you read that in the book of Acts. You see, Paul took all these strangers, changes to his plans. He took them in his stride and being of the Lord's doing. He didn't get rattled or perturbed when his plans were, were changed by, by seeming circumstances even when his own life was on the line. Why was that? Because he was completely satisfied that God was in control and the Lord's will was being done through these providential changes, I call them. My dear people, if we are going to be faithful Christians, we need to be flexible. 
flexible when our plans don't go like the way we wanted them to go or want them to go. One of the challenges of life and we will face as a church is to remain faithful and to stay the course when God providentially changes our plans. And he does that, right? He does that. There's nothing wrong in making plans. Matter of fact, I would suggest if you don't make plans, you don't have goals, it's not a very healthy way to live. We need to make plans and have goals. But there is something sinfully wrong when we refuse to bend and allow God's providential changes to direct our future course in life. Something sinfully wrong. Maybe it's because we're so full of ourselves and not dependent upon the Lord. My way or the highway. We're quite good at that, sad to say. We need to see the hand of God in the changes to our plans and in the circumstances that crop up which we haven't even considered. We need to be flexible, even if it means, even if it means forgoing something or someone special to us in order to attend a more important priority elsewhere. We need to be flexible and redirected when our plans are changed or or maybe when trauma strikes. Think of the plans that were changed for the Filipinos in that city that was devastated. All the plans that were had, people died, thousands of them. Or, Or maybe we need to be flexible when we lose our job. or when we lose our lifelong mate. We need to be flexible when plans for getting married don't happen. When plans for a husband and wife to have children are denied. Or when a spouse one day wakes up and says, I don't love you anymore. What do we do? Throw it all in? No, we must stay the course. We must be flexible and see this whole change of plans as God providentially dealing with us and testing our faithfulness to Him. When our plans change, our job is to trust the Lord who sees the big picture. Our job is to remain faithful, which also requires each one of us to be flexible. You see, folks, believers who pursue flexibilities, flexibility when plans are changed They are those who trust that God knows what he's doing even when we have no idea what he's doing with our lives. Do you trust him like that? Are you flexible enough to stay the course? Conclusions. So how's it going to be in 2014? Let us have a holy ambition for a healthy church. May it be that we pursue spiritual maturity. May it be that we pursue an evangelistic emphasis and pursue flexibility when our plans are changed. God bless you all in the new coming year and for his glory.